0: Welcome to Brands in Action, the podcast that asks the questions every brand should be asking. Today, we welcome George Tannenbaum, founder, creative at GeorgeCo LLC. George has spent well over half his life in the advertising business, yet he still manages to be a nice guy. He currently makes his living working directly for clients and agencies. Before that, George spent 10 years at Ogilvy helping run his dream account, IBM. And before that, he was executive creative director at RGA, running their first traditional advertising account. George's resume reads like a who's who and a where's where of the ad business, with stints at agencies like Hal Reine and Partners, Allie and & Gargano, and Lowe. George has won major awards for both creativity and effectiveness in four media channels, traditional, direct, interactive, and experiential. He's won a total of 15 Effies, including the Grand Effie and the 550 Sustaining Effie. He might be the only person on earth to have done that. George also writes a popular advertising blog, Ad Aged that was called A Most Influential Marketing Blog by Business Insider. He lives in a small house on the sea in Connecticut with his wife, Laura, and the world's cutest golden retriever. Hey, George. Hi, David. How are you? you know what? I want to meet this guy someday.
1: <laughs> he sounds amazing. He does sound
0: pretty cool. Yeah,
1: I have to say. <laughs> my mother would, would be saying right now he should have been a doctor.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I think she might read that and not nah, say that. You didn't know my mother. <laughs> I'd love to hear a little bit about the history of your business. You know, we, we came at the end of what I think of as the golden age. You know, if you, if you think about sort of that madman era, when I started in the business, those guys were all sort of my age now. Yeah. Tell me about kind of where you come from and how you started, what got you into this business. There's actually two ways into the story. The first answer, you know, when you're 63 like I
1: am, you get the madman question a lot. But the biggest answer is my uncle, Sydney they grew up poor in Philadelphia, my father's family, and uh, the mother didn't speak English, the father was dead. Sydney somehow got into advertising. You know, it was probably 1948 in Philadelphia. Wow. And the mainline agencies, and there were some big agencies there, I think NWA was based in Philly. at Yeah, the yeah. Yep. They didn't want to do TV. Much the same way 30 years ago, the big agencies weren't really interested in interactive. It was it's not where the money was, executionally it was crude, the technology was nascent, it didn't have wide distribution. So he was willing to do TV. Now mind you, TV in the day was a curvy woman opening a refrigerator and saying, look how easy the drawers slide. (laughs) Right, right. I I mean, I hate to say it, a lot of the stuff Media Arts Lab now does with the iPhone and they show you the features, is kind of what we were doing back then. Indeed. In a very unsophisticated way, because A, the technology wasn't there, B, anything you did was I hadn't seen before. So it was cool. So being in Philly, the apple of its day was across the river in Camden, New Jersey, uh, RCA. My uncle Sid had the Philadelphia Phillies account, the RCA account, and uh, Alpo Dog Food, which I think was locally based. Yeah, And he did well. My father started working for his brother, and they never got along. And my father, I guess, had Greater ambitions, or there weren't, there wasn't a need for two Tannenbaums in Philadelphia. So he got a job at an agency in Manhattan, uh, which was a top ten or fifteen agency at the time, called Kenyon and Eckhart. Oh, sure. If you remember back in the day, there were kind of like you could divide the New York agency world pretty equally into thirds. There were the creative shops, big package goods, ugly shops like Kenyon and Eckhart, William Esty, things like that. Right. And then right. there were a lot of shops, kind of. Somewhere along that spectrum, maybe a little more package right. goods, he's maybe a little more creative. Right. So KE was in the package goods shop. My father was there for his entire career rising, believe it or not, to uh chairman of the board. Wow. Weren't they based in Philly? No, no. They were they were in New York by that time. They were actually in what was then the Pan Am Building. They were an original yeah. tenant uh, of yeah. the Pan Am building. And he got Forced out at one point and moved to Chicago, so I had a little bit of a circuitous detour wow. to Chicago. but you know I grew up and this isn't really apocryphal; it might be exaggerated, but I remember you know seeing my father get dressed in the morning, and you know as a young boy, he'd go to work looking like Rob Petrie from the uh Dick Van Dyke show, you know right. uh, you know a suit and a skinny tie and proper shoes. And then all of a sudden, he looked like the character LSD from the producers. <laughs> you know, he's got like lapels out to the yeah. neighbor's yards. He's yeah. wearing ties that are literally the width of the crust end of a pizza. Yeah. You know, beetles' uh, Beatles boots, aviator glasses. You know, tinted I'll be yellow sideburns. Yeah, and and it was like I remember, like as a kid, going, "What happened to my father?" Yeah. Because it was it was as if it happened overnight. Yeah. I, I think the semiotics of dress are a little slower today than maybe they were then, but I think it took me about 12 years to start untucking my shirt. You know, we, remember we used to tuck our right. shirts and wear it belt. It took yeah, me yeah. a long time to feel like I wasn't a poser, but he right. just went boom. He just, yeah. it was a switch. So yeah. I, I grew up with a kind of toe in that madman era. And and, you know, he did the things that men did in those times, philandered and drank and drank and philandered. And mm-hmm. it looked pretty good to me. You know, he—he he, <laughs> when I was at Ogilvy, I stumbled upon a movie, which I could send to you, by the way. It's half an hour long. It's a big file. But it was a, from 1978, it was the last day of hot type at the New York Times. Wow. And I would play it for young people because I was trying to bring in young people to teach them more about the craft aspects of our job. I wanted to acquaint them with this because I wanted to let them know how hard it was and is and how respectful you need to be of type. That right. it's not just something you press a keyboard and, and the type comes out. You have to, right. even though we can do that now, we should be more reverent about how we got there.
2: Right.
1: But my point in bringing that up was there was a time you know, when people who work for a living until fairly recently came home with grease under their fingernails and sweat stains under their arms, well, that wasn't true in advertising. It looked pretty good. So we grew up with Ad Ad Age, the magazine in the house. Right. And you remember not a- many people do. Yeah. And and I, I would look at it because it was it was interesting and it was a tabloid and it had that kind of Walter Winchell gossip column style. But the back cover, which was an ad for Ad Age every week was always eight photographs in two columns of four. And on one side it would be like Max Dane and the right. other side it would be Bill Burnback and you had to match the names. It was for ad nerds. Yeah. 60 years ago. And yeah. it was like I remember that. But, you know, that was kind of the world I grew up in. And then when I started in the business, it was pretty much the leaders of most of the agencies you wanted to go to had had some association with DDB. At its in its halcyon days, DDB was still yeah. big then and good. I'm not disparaging them, but they were still like a destination. And so most of the agencies were led by ex DDB guys, or you know, Delahanty, Kern, Geller. They were you know guys who were kind of in that pantheon. And, and I'm sorry, I'm saying guys, but it was guys in that pantheon of wide-tied madmen. And, you know, I was fortunate enough or unfortunate enough to work for Ron Rosenfeld and Lent Sirowitz, who were both in the Advertising Hall of Fame. Yeah. And the epigram is that Ron was the first copywriter to make $100,000 when he jumped from oh. DDB to Jay Walter. And he drove a Rolls Royce.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. So
1: the money was flowing more in the industry than any industry I grew up in. The vestiges, uh, I mean, of course, we were you know, on full commission, 1765 markup on production, all that stuff. So it was a different industry. And then I went for, you know, I left those guys and, and I worked for Emil and Mike Tesh who were also in the hall of fame yeah. and they had their own, for lack of a better word, swagger. So right. I was never, I don't really drink as you know, I mean, I'll have a drink, but right. I'm not right. a carouser. And um, 37 years of marriage is somewhat impinged upon my philandering so uh at least not a problem for some people that's what i'll tell the judge so um yeah i mean that's the world i grew up in it looked pretty good to me it looked like a nice way to
0: make a living there's more options now but back then there weren't as many ways to use your creativity to rely on your creativity to actually make money there was hollywood there was radio there was advertising and then Kind of after that, there was like, you had to be a fine artist and and sort of expect not to make money unless you were in that sort of 5% of of all. artists. Yeah.
1: And growing up in New York, if I had to do like a scrapbook of the life of a fine artist, it would be a six floor walk up in Alphabet City with a mattress on the floor and cockroaches. And I didn't want to do that. Yeah. So I had to find kind of a commercial melding of my need to... Write or create or think in a nonlinear way. And advertising was it. There was no YouTube. I couldn't become a YouTube star. And I didn't know anyone writing for Saturday Night
0: Live or or, uh, the Joe Piscopo show or anything. Um, So, you know, this was it. I think what's interesting now is the democratization of creativity has happened. Like, that's one of the good things about. The current state of technology and social media and all those things, I personally don't know about it actually paying anymore. I, I feel like you know musicians have been destroyed. You have to tour to make money now. So you know if you want to write songs and and uh, make a living doing that, you've you've got to tour. You just have to. And back then there were fewer options, I think, to us. But you could make a lot more money doing it. And now there's infinite options, and certain people make a lot of money. But most people I think don't. I think most people are not monetizing their creativity on social. There's more stuff out there, it seems to me, right. than there are eyeballs. And I stumbled
1: upon, uh, somehow, Ed McCabe and I are Facebook friends. Right. Which is, you know, somewhat perilous um, <laughs> for many reasons. But I read something he wrote the other day about Scally, which I think kind of has some bearing in what you're saying, which is we didn't have rules, we had standards. Right. And a lot of the internet content, there's no rules and there's no standards. Right. (laughs) Because I'll see somebody acting out a scene from Citizen Kane, and I'm like, what are you doing? Right. First of all, you're pitting yourself against Orson Welles. Right. And Mankiewicz and Toland. I mean, if you're going to imitate something, Imitate Gilligan. I mean, set the bar a little lower. Um, And frankly, I think that's true with the craze on corporate content. I I have no idea why anybody would watch about 98% of
0: the stuff companies produce. It's funny. Most of the creativity is everywhere but advertising right now. Right. You know? I have my theories as to why that is. I think it's the, the client gatekeepers have only have ROI in mind because the CMOs get fired after eighteen right. months if they don't deliver X or Y. So everything needs to be scientific and proven. And it's a very tough spot for them, I think, as well. One of the reasons I, I thought it would be fantastic to have you on this podcast is A, I think your point of view is really important right now. But also this is a you know, this is a podcast about branding. Right. And I think that you have mastered, in a multimedia way, your own brand. And I don't, for a minute, sort of think you think about yourself as a brand in the way that I'm talking about, where you you have a brand statement and an articulation and all that stuff. But I do want to talk about that, because I think that you have, I like to think of brands as sort of a, a set of behaviors based on a belief system. It's right. acting. It's being. It's not BSing. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just a logo. And it's also not just hot air. And I think for you, you are absolutely occupying your brand in a way that I think brands should take notice of because you're being who you are, you're taking a stand, you're not afraid to be controversial, but it's always controversial in the, in the service of your mission, of what you're up to and your, your point of view. And I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit about that. Apologies to you if you feel like this is making you sort of douchely talk about yourself as a brand, but I'd love to know your, your thoughts on how you approach it. You know, I I totally get the question
1: and you're right. You know, I never, I never set out to do this, the blog thing. I went kicking and screaming into it mm-hmm. and I started the blog at the suggestion of an ex partner of mine, Tori Clayson, who said, you know, when I, I lost a job or something, he said, "Well, you know, you're going to die if you don't have this coterie of people around you because you need to right. you need to spout because you have ideas and you like to talk them through. That's part of your process." You start a blog. I had never even heard of a blog at that point. Right. right. What year is it, George? This is 2006. Yeah, that's early. Early, I yeah. think. Around that time, might have been the first time I googled myself. And unlike the name David Baldwin, which is probably a more common name than George Tannenbaum. There's a
0: million people. There,
1: there aren't a lot of George Tannenbaums, but I noticed I wasn't the first to come up. I mean, talk about branding. Yeah. That's a bad problem to have. Yeah. If more and more of the industry is beginning to look for talent, agency industry, beginning to look for talent online, and you're not the first one to come up, I'm not an interactive guy, but you have to figure out a way to become first in the results. Right, but then going back to kind of where we started, there were probably 150 credible agencies in New York, right? I would guess, which means yeah. for the 50 weeks of the year, if you were looking for a job, you could schlep your book to three agencies every week and not run out. Right. By 2006, seven, eight, it's really a dozen agencies. Mm-hmm. So Francis is the gatekeeper. If you see her on 10-1 and she likes you, she says, George, I'll keep you in mind. And you can't really call her again if you saw her October 1st, just spoke to her October 1st. You really can't call her again till around Christmas time. right? And then it's Christmas time and you don't want to call her at Christmas time and then it's New if Year's. And, no. and so what you realize is just to be a direct marketer for a second, which we all have to be in a sense, you can't have a touch strategy. If it takes someone at my level six months to get hired, just like in our business now, David, as as you're pursuing clients, you're not going to make a call on a Tuesday and get an account on a Wednesday. Right. You have to find something to talk to people about. Yeah. It takes years sometimes. Yeah. So I said to myself, well, how am I going to, and I'm a very shy person, how am I going to stay in front of the dozen people who are left hiring without being a pest without making phone calls. I gotta do something every day. So it was really, I was thinking about it this morning as I was out for my, my walk. It's like when I was a kid, I had a job working for, uh, and when my father moved to Chicago and my parents moved to Chicago, I had a job working for a sausage company. And it wasn't as bad as Sinclair Lewis, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I drove to every, you know, I had to do it like six times in the summer. I had to drive to every supermarket in the, in the Chicago land area and count the shelf spacings that this particular sausage company had and to see if they were getting, I guess, the shelf space they were paying for. Right. But a lot of our life is shelf space. Mm. If you were looking for a job, you could do the calculus and say, well, how many people have won this many awards, have this title, they're copywriters and they're, they fit this in a sense demo. I mean, because you're competing against other four door cars, let's say. So I, I have to be present. So I, right. I did think about myself in a way, because I'm a marketer, not so much a brand and kind of the cosmetic brandingness, but how do I put myself out there and stand for something and remind people that I'm alive? Because right. there was a time, of course, when politicians would drive through small towns with a station wagon with loudspeakers on it, say, you know, vote for me, vote for me. We don't get to do that anymore. But we have 90 other channels to do it for us. Right,
2: right. So
1: I felt like I had to create this thing, and it was really a touch strategy. Like, how do I stay present? Yeah. And the other part of it, of the branding, if I had to define my my brand, and I don't think I'm being self-effacing, I think I'm actually being honest, is there are people who have won a lot more awards than I have. Mm -hmm. But my strength, I think, has always been I can do a lot of digging. Mm -hmm. I can do a lot of work, not just tonnage, it's good. But I wanted to get this notion out there, I'm gonna use a big word, that there's a quotidian nature to advertising. Mm -hmm. Uh, Remember the old Fallon Wall Street Journal line, the Daily Diary of the American Dream. Yeah, it's one of the best lines ever. Yeah, Yeah. and I always felt like the best way to show who you are as a writer is to show how you write. And a book, in a way, a portfolio, and especially in, in the old days, the, the uh, lamination days, was a fixed point in the past. Whereas mm-hmm. what we're allowed to do today, to use a, a, a cliche, is to show, not tell. I can show how I write. Right. I don't have to tell someone through a portfolio on ads that went through, to quote Rich
0: Siegel's blog, 17 rounds. Right. Which, by the way, I, I don't even know if those, we live at a time where something 10 years ago that was great is sort of deemed old hat and maybe irrelevant, you know?
1: I remember going through an old awards book. This is probably like 1985. And I remember the, the name of the team because I worked for him for a time that did the work. But it won gold, I think, from Della Femina, probably 1983. Yeah. For like Cuisinart or something. Yeah. And the headline was, How to Make Pasta, Fasta."
0: Yeah, that was Ernie Schenck. Oh, was it? Yeah, I was—I I believe that was Ernie Shank at. Uh, I thought it was Deanna you know, Cohen, but I could be wrong. I thought it was Ernie Shank at Pagano Shank and Kay, but I, it might be.
1: I might be wrong. But my point is, you'd get kicked out of like SVA for that today.
2: Oh yeah, and it's
1: not that it sucks. It's just it's a little bit like Groucho Marx in a Dave Chappelle world. It's not going to play. <laughs> right, right. It's not that it's not funny. It's just not our taste. You know, every once in a while, at Times will run a restaurant review of like. The Chinese food we—a restaurant that serves the Chinese food we grew up with—not the Chinese food that's been gourmet, right? And they're two different species of food. Yeah, that's indeed indeed uh, true. It's like I guess it's like on a Yankee Stadium—you can get a fillet, <laughs> not a hot dog. You
0: get a, you get all sushi. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think the nature of writing, the appreciation for writing, the nature of writing has changed a little bit. And the an example that I would give is. I got an assignment recently to work on one of our clients and I did what I do. I had to write a bunch of posts for Facebook, you know, and Instagram and, and, and I did what I do. I wrote six pages for every like decent line. I had six pages of shit, you know, of crap. Right. And I wrote a line for one of our chocolate clients. We have this chocolate client called the Dairy Chocolate Factory I love. And I wrote this line that I just, I love. And the line was, you know, the chocolate's one of the healthiest foods on the planet. It's a superfood. It's really high in antioxidants. And so I wrote, I wrote a line that said, um, chocolate is magic. That's just science. (laughs) And it got, went on a post George. I worked on it the way I worked on doc Martins years ago. I worked on it for a long time. And I, and that was my favorite line of probably a hundred lines that I wrote and it came and went, you know what I mean? And yeah, I do know what you mean. It was weird. I really had kind of an epiphany at that moment where I went, wow, this changed, because that would have been on an ad at one point that would have had staying power that people might have interacted with, read, enjoyed, chuckled, read more, gotten into the copy. And it was just a ephemeral line on a social post. A lot of times, probably
1: like you, I'll get called by a big corporation. They want me to do some work for them, like finding a brand voice and this and that and the other thing, but they're going to turn whatever I do over to their in-house agency. So they also want like a set of rules around right. how they write and how they construct messaging. And so I've pulled together a piece that, you know, I'll, i admit, I merchandise, I don't do an original piece for every client because there's some, there's some basics, right. but you know, it took me some time to do this and some thought, but I found something that Aristotle wrote 2,500 years ago. And it's what you were doing for the chocolate client. Yeah. He broke speech, and it was oration, not, not written. He broke speech down into five parts exordium, which is the hook. Right. Neradio, which is the context or background. So your little spiel about antioxidants is the background. Right. Right. Propositio, that's the claim, the science, the argument. Confirmatio, proof points, peritorio, conclusion and call to action. And you go. This was 300 <laughs> BC guys. That's, that's advertising. I mean, yeah. and Trot does you know uh, yeah. impact communication, persuasion, and that's yeah. maybe better than Aristotle. I just don't feel comfortable rewriting Aristotle, but yeah. or Trot. I mean, that's what we're doing. It's the purchase funnel. Yeah, well, kind of. Yeah. yeah. The other thing is actually interesting and frustrating. But what I, I find now when I present to clients, and a lot of times I'm not really asked to do ads anymore, which is unfortunate because people don't run ads. Right. Give me an assignment of positioning, manifesto, stuff like this. And you write a manifesto and it feels as a presentation a little thin. It's 150 words on a page. Right. It, right. Is it a commercial? Is it a film? What is it? Right. And so usually what I do, and I have about on a scale of 1 to 100, my proficiency at InDesign is about a 2. But I can, I can draw a rectangle, put a type box in it, and set some type. That's right. all I can do. So what I realized is in the past, if you and I were working together on Heinz Ketchup, we would spend six weeks working. We would do three campaigns of three ads each. The client would buy one. Those three ads would run for two years. Right. Now, I go to a client literally with 45 ads and I say, look, buy them all. You don't have to like them all because they only last a day. Yeah, right, right. But the point is, it's a little bit like going back to my shelf space thing. You have to be in front of people's face. You have to be there every day because no one's going to remember your logo anymore. It's a different way of creating work.
0: And that goes for everybody. I mean, it, it goes beyond just sort of client work. It goes into your personal stuff too. And one of the exactly. things I love is you have this really great personal campaign that you do. You do your George Co ads. Talk about that a little bit. What goes into those? How do you approach those? Like most Jews, I'm very, very hard on myself. Very,
1: very uh, 40 years of therapy worth of neurosis. So, you know, the minute the phone stops ringing, I start panicking. I'm only a year <laughs> and a half into my own business. Yeah. So, I don't have the kind of um as media people would say, I don't have kind of a reckoning of pulse and sustain when it's not pulsing. I'm panicking I mean the same way to tell you the truth, if I ran a shoe repair shop, if that little bell wasn't ringing on the door, I'd be, like, oh honey, yeah. I'm in trouble <laughs> um yeah. so um you know when I see things feel a little slow, I'll try to create something, but in reality, there's usually something, I guess this is smart on my part, though it's not well-planned. There's always something dumb that happens in the industry, probably eight times a month. Yeah. And you can't sneeze without hitting an NFT. So right. it's like, okay, well, it's borrowed interest, but I'll write a line that says, not fungible, but fun. And, you right. know, and put my right. logo and you go, okay, well. Humanity has used spoken language for about 200,000 years. For 199, 999 years, no one has ever used the word fungible. Now we hear it 75 times a day. I'm going to put fungible in an ad and I'm going to get noticed. I mean, it's really that simple. Yeah. It's the same thing you would do if you were working. I started at Bloomingdale's in the advertising department. Wow. You're trying to capture... I, I could sound like an asshole to go, a zeitgeist. Uh, you, you you try to get in on the
0: conversation. I love it. Listen, I love the word zeitgeist. I think right now zeitgeist is everything because we don't live in a, a factual based world right now. Right. We live in a zeitgeist world. So I, I think zeitgeist is what we're dealing with. Right. It's become truth. Zeitgeist has become our truths. Right. And that's a very strange place to be, especially for people like us who respect facts and truth and if I was going to say what I think you're fantastic at, this is my point of view, is you're fantastic at taking technical and complicated and turning it into delightful. Like you're just good at that. Thank you. I mean, I, it's funny.
1: I'm friendly with a guy called Rob Schwartz, who's the CEO of whatever, sure. the chairman, yeah. I guess now of the TBWA group. There's a technology process. I worked on this when I was at Ogilvy called uh, robotic process automation. <laughs> it was sexy, eh? but basically anything, any repeatable task that anyone has to do. So the best way I can explain this is you have health insurance, you have dental insurance, your kids are on your plan and every different sort of doctor or hospital or, 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 or thing you go to has a different health a form to fill out, but they need it done in that way. So right. you might five times have to fill out a dental form. Three times fill out a a chiropractor. If it's repeatable, it's algorithmic. You can make an algorithm do it. So, robotic process automation for, let's say, an agency holding company says, okay, we deal 80% of our uh, TV production goes to these 12 directors. So, I know how Smuggler likes to get paid. I know how Pitka likes to get paid. I I know how Soundhound likes to get paid or whatever the fuck it is. And I can algorithmicize that. So rather than having five people in a cube doing this billing, robotic processes can do it, complicated and scary. I mean, in this country, the jobs have already been lost, but the next wave of job loss is going to happen in like the phone trees in, in, yep. in the subcontinent, India. But what I did, and it won the pitch, was I wrote a children's book explaining robotic process automation. And I mean, I I literally did. It's a a
0: brilliant idea to make it safe and uh, consumable.
1: Yeah. And it won the pitch. And about two weeks later, the client came up to me and said, I have to tell you, I read your book to my nine-year-old. And she said, Nah, mommy, now I know what you do. Wow. And I said to the client, you know what? All of us in advertising, because awards are essentially meaningless, have won a shitload of awards. That means more to me than a can lion. I I really couldn't give a rat's ass about a can lion. Right. So I showed it to Rob because he was trying to work out what a manifesto is because it's no longer a sermon on the Mount. It can't just be the same way you and I grew up with a certain style of voiceover. And now it's a way more casual style. It has yeah, to be a, yeah. a much more of an armor, a much more of a fireside chat than Again, the Sermon on the Mount, much more of an arm around the shoulder. So I showed this to Rob just by way of an example, and he goes, "Oh, that's a charma festo," and it's like, "Okay, you know, if you can be charming, and you have that ability, be charming. This yeah. is a cold, cruel world. Yeah. So, and people are fucking afraid of everything.
0: The whole idea of su- of re- very professional voiceovers." has become a signal of bad advertising right? often. And also, I think it's code switching for people where they go, oh, I'm being advertised to, I don't trust this anymore. Right. That's a fundamental, talk about zeitgeist, that's probably somewhere in there. That's something that has happened to us as our, our BS meters have started to filter differently than they used to. You know, I think we used to filter the information we were told by who was saying it, how it was said, all those things. I think now it's, there's, there's a, a million other factors.
1: You know, I remember where I was when it changed. And I remember at Alley, we always used the old blind guys, uh, Brian Hartigan, yeah. Lester Rawlings, Harlan Rector. And they were guys with million dollar voices.
0: They used to send you gifts, you remember? They yeah. would send you like expensive gifts. Alan Bleviss. You- <laughs> um, so I remember Amirati had won the MasterCard account
1: and they did some really nice work and Billy Crudup the actor was the VO yeah and all of a sudden it went from guys who made a million dollars because they were flemmy <laughs> to right. to gilligan and it was like this is more than just a style this is a relationship to authority that i think a lot of the industry a lot of the
0: old line shops didn't notice there was a time, too, where actors would not be in commercials, right? right? And that's completely changed. Right. And so what you end up with is really fine actors delivering your script sometimes, and they make it less imposing. Right. It's not imposing anymore. Right. You know, which is why, again, I will say, when you hear an imposing sort of traditional voiceover, you just kind of, I sh- I personally, I just shut down. I just go, okay, this sucks. Well, this it- is Unless it's the way, you know, it's used archly, if if a a way like a Wyden and Kennedy might use it, you know? Right. But, you
1: know, in a way, I think maybe the first people to catch on to this were the writers of Saturday Night Live and Mm. the kind of mockery of Don Pardo. Yeah. It was reverent, but
0: mocking at the same time. Yeah, it's very self-aware. Yeah. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So, you know, I remember um, when I first started reading your blog a long time ago. I remember thinking like, it's really interesting that George constantly talks about ageism and in particular how old he is, because I thought at the time I, 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 w- I was filtering it as, I wonder if this is a mistake to talk about old, how old he is all the time in that as a sort of fan of positioning and those sorts of things. But I came to start to go like, man, this guy's jujitsuing the whole conversation and showing how ridiculous ageism is by again being. And I'd love to hear you talk about your stance on ageism and what you think the costs of that are. And in particular, I, I always really adore when you talk about this person discovered, you know, the Boson particle at 67, right? Or, you know, whatever it was. Talk a little bit about that and where that comes from for you and how you've, do you think you've made headway in the conversation? No. And, and mm. the, the reason I say
1: that is I posted about it, I think last week or the week before, you know, WPP who fired me even though I was making them super more
0: proud of their young people. Yeah. Uh,
1: you know, even I was making them more money than I was costing them. I don't give a shit. Shelly Lazarus, arguably the most powerful person in advertising was friendly with someone on the board at Boeing. Boeing, as we all know, had a lot of problems with the seven thirty seven max. Right. Shelly yeah. said, let me help. Shelly came to me and said, George, help. And you have to write ads for a company who are, first and foremost, defense contractors in the Robert McNamara, I can't tell the truth tradition. (laughs) Right. Obviously, I'm biased, but I mean, I don't think they're categorically unable to say the floor is wet. They would say it has a damp condition. A damp condition prevails, (laughs) you know, just (laughs) like we're going to win hearts and minds, and body count means we're winning. We live through this, David. We're old enough. Enough to have yeah. lived through it, and so I was doing. I it- used to work on Raytheon. Okay, yeah. Bit. So it, yeah. same difference, except Raytheon never had a consumer end, right? Where you need to say, "Hey, where your friends were safe," and didn't have two highly publicized crashes that they swept negligently under the rug and denied, what defense contractors do. So, you know, Shelley picked me to do this. I busted my ass, man. I got, gave up every night and every weekend. For six months. Right. To the point where anytime she saw, and she is emeritus at this point, she wasn't coming in every day, but when she did see me, it was a hug and a kiss and a thank you. Yeah. That meant something to me because. Yeah, thank you always does. Yeah. And then they fire me. And at the age of 62, and I'm looking around in the industry, and I always worked in kind of a technical side of the industry. And I said, who the hell can do this? I'm not saying I'm the only good writer, but. Who the hell can do this? And I'm like, you've thrown out 40 years of human understanding because, or 60, because what I said to the Boeing client is, here's your strategy. My wife went away on a business trip. I was horsing around in the house with the dog and I broke her favorite vase. So how do I handle this? I sweep it up. I go on eBay. I buy as close to the original vase as I can do. The moment she comes in the house from the trip, I say, listen, Laura, I'm really sorry. I broke the vase, but I cleaned it up and a new one will be here Tuesday. That's what you have to do. Right. I think that takes a certain age, wisdom, understanding of humanity that I certainly didn't have at 35. A planner's not going to tell you it. A planner's not going to give you kind of the semiotic deconstruction of guilt. (laughs) Um, So you have to kind of go through life experience. You have to have done some
0: horrible things in your life to understand what they did, I think. I think of strategists need to be part of the team, not uh, siloed not the DMV where you go to one window. So many agencies sort of silo off their services into windows. You, know, you go to this window and right. then you go to the next window and then you go to the next window. And clients are like, look, I'm not standing in line again. And then you get up to the, the creative window with the client and the client kills it. And then they go, well, you got to go back to that other window. right? You know, right. You know I, I think it's like, it's exactly what you're saying. I think the experience comes through the team personally. And what happens is when there's a disrespect on the team on any side, that's where the, the problems become this dysfunction. All of that said, where do you think that lives now? Like, you know, are the ad schools able to address this? Like, what's the role of the ad school now? Are, are they still relevant, you think? I taught at Chicago Portfolio Center in Ad House in New York the
1: last couple of terms. I stopped this year. It was just too much for me. But, you know, I decided to teach my own class and not teach kind of the ad school way. I went... yeah almost to the Aristotle that we talked about a minute ago. Yeah. Like how do we get to the fundamentals to the point where I think I might've talked to you about this when I came up with the idea. The first assignment I do in class is I don't care what the ad is for. The assignment is get noticed in times square,
2: right. get
1: noticed in times square. And because in a sense, going back to the beginning of this conversation, that's where we're advertising now because there's 3000 channels. Right. And nobody gives a shit about saran wrap. Um, right. Nobody. You know, my speaking in really broad strokes and probably unfairly, I think the, if I had to be very, very macro about this, I think the sentiment of the industry since the rise of digital has ignored impact because the promise of digital, like the promise of direct mail before it, was we can target so you don't have to get attention. Right. I can send you something about guitars and I know you're going to open it because you're a guitar right. guy. It doesn't right. have to be, if Stradivarius made a guitar, this would be it. It doesn't right. have to be thoughtful, assuming that was good. But I think that lack of kind of, for lack of a better word, grabbing someone by the lapels and yeah. saying, notice me is endemic to the industry. And going back to your question a few minutes ago about this campaign for myself, at its very simplest, this is about getting noticed. Right. You know, Steve Hayden used to say, Steve was my mentor. I was his protege and I was lucky enough to sit at his knee. And one of the things he would always- Amazing mentor. Yeah. He was just, I mean, he still is. Uh, One of the first things he'd, he'd ask people- when he met them, because he's a convivial guy, but very shy, so he knows how to play the game, is, you know, were you a first child? Were you a middle child? Were you a youngest child? And if he said, no, I'm, I'm a younger child, I'm a middle child, whatever. If he said that, he'd always say, oh, good. Because the best ad people are never first children.
0: Interesting. Because
1: first children don't have to work to get noticed. Hmm. <laughs> we. Have, yeah. I mean, were you a first? I'm the youngest. No, okay, so I'm there. the youngest of four. Yeah, yeah, you had to fight. Oh, yeah, did I? To get noticed. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, if you think about like turtles are going to come back to the same nest on the same yeah. beach, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're going to do what we did at two weeks old. Right. You know, we have to get mommy's attention. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what this is about, you know, and I, maybe it comes naturally to me because I'm, I'm naturally rebellious. But the ads I do are just kind of rebellious against the, prevent- the dominant complacency of the industry. The industry right. says old people suck. I say young people suck. Uh, no, I don't say young people suck. I say- Yeah, they, yeah. and they
0: don't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but I say, no, no, that's not true. You know, I, I can do this, that, and the other thing. I will also say this about young people right now is I think the young people that I deal with care more than the young people I dealt with 20 years ago. Now, what do they care about? They don't necessarily have the sort of they li- don't live in the same milieu of craft and some right. of those things, but they really do care about what they're working on. What the client feels that it worked, and they want to know. You know, of course, they want to win awards and all those things. And 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 that's a whole other conversation that we probably should have because I think I'd love I'd love your point of view on it. But it's it really is a very mindful, interesting group of young people coming into the business right now, and I really like them. And I think there was. I have 15, 20 years ago, I didn't like them so much. You know, right. I, I was like, oh God, they're, they're a pain in the ass. They're entitled. And I don't mean entitled like they're millennial entitled. They're just entitled in that. It's what I used to call the cool shit right. uh, philosophy of if anybody came into my office and said, I just want to do cool shit. I'd go, oh God, I'm so sorry you, you chose this field. You will sometimes, you know, right, right, right. But don't ever say that to a client because what you need to do is do cool shit for a client without them realizing you're trying to do cool shit. like You need to come up with novel, really interesting ways to tell their stories and get the results they need to get. And if that's what you mean, we're all in. But if you think this is some art project you just joined, there's like maybe an agency or two you can go to that, that will do that. But that's, that was always a warning sign for me that I was like, oh, I'm gonna be the guy that has to watch the light go out of your eyes when you find out that's not what this industry is. And I say that as being a champion of work. Yeah, tool is not a strategy. Yeah. And so, you know, for now, what I don't know if the ad schools, I feel like the books that I see from the ad schools are the exact same books I saw 20 years ago, and the industry's dramatically changed. And I don't have a philosophy on it. I don't know. I really like the kids. I feel like the ad schools might be teaching a, a context that is not there anymore.
1: I get frustrated looking at books. Maybe I'll admit I'm being too rigid. Hmm. I was used to, you know, having, and this dates me, but metaphorically, 20 laminations. Okay, 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 okay. Good pile. No, yeah. no, no. Bad pile. Then I'd go through the good top pile with more depth, look at the reels, look at nutty stuff that's in there. But now I see six minute case studies. Right. And I don't have the time. Right. And as a matter of fact, I don't know if I asked you to do this. I can send it to you if you're curious. Before I taught a couple terms ago, I went to about 10 or 15 different different level creatives and recruiters in the industry. And I said, How do you look at a book? Mm. And I compiled it because I thought it was important for students to understand their audience. Your audience is fucking busy. No one right. can take a whole day off to look at books. I mean, right. you, you can hardly do it with director's reels. Right. And you're, spend, right. you're about to spend a million dollars. So you really can't do it with portfolios. I worked at this. I mean, this, this to me was an important document. It could also, in my humble estimation, could also be publishable. You have how I look at a book by luminaries like Simpson, Hayden, yeah. Joe Alexander, whoever it is, Sally Mars at McCann. You know, so I went on the recruitment side. And I went on the, the Hall of Fame side, and then I went on the kind of roll-up-your-sleeve side. And, you know, I go, well, th- God, this is an easy series. How I attack a brief. How I yeah. Uh, yeah. start writing copy. I mean, this is this is easy. Is this something we could
0: post on this page when we... Yeah, yeah, like, I'm,
1: I'm looking for it actually. now. Um, I gave this to all the, all the kids. It's um, 3,500 words long.
0: Yeah. You know, Dave Trot,
1: friend of mine, Mark Klein, Rob Schwartz. David Baldwin, you were in it. Uh, okay. Mark Hartzman, writer who used to work for me. Eric Aronin, Leslie Sims, who you know. Sally Mars, John Long, E.C. at Ogilvy, Vicky E.C.D. formerly at Ogilvy, Hayden, Chris Beresford Hill from TBWA, and then you know some young people, creative manager at Shyatt Day, and the two guys who 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 run the ad house. So uh, fifteen people, and I send this to him, and. Everyone to a person said, basically, it's got to stop me. It's got to be quick. Yeah. And then you start, because basically I was saying in class, I can't live with you telling me 10 minutes of why this work is good and then showing me the work. Because right. the viewer doesn't get the explanation, guys. Right. <laughs> Show me the work. And I would ask them to say, you can do convince that because, convince motorcycle riders that you know the Vespa – is the scooter that's most like a real motorcycle because it has a bigger engine? I'm just making that up right, but give exactly. me that for your context, but I don't want any more than that. They can't do it, they couldn't do it, yeah, I found that very frustrating,
0: yeah, when you get stuck, one of the the best pieces of advice, and i I think it's David Abbott, I'm not sure, but is just write a letter to somebody, yeah, you know, just, just when you're writing a copy, write a letter, and I find. When you do well, that was Bob. That was Bob Levinson. Oh, it was. It was. The, okay. It was. I can send it to you. It's on my blog. It was. It was actually the
1: last paragraph of this obituary. It was, the reporter quoted a guy called Dominic Insing, who's German, who wrote a book called uh, "Ugly Is Only Skin Deep" about the VW ads. Hmm. And it was Levinson saying he puts a piece. Of this this dates us all. He puts a piece of paper in the typewriter writes Dear Charlie, then I say what I need to say, then I take it out of the typewriter, cross out Dear Charlie, and I'm okay. And is it's beautifully dumb in a way like the 2,000-year-old man would be beautifully right. dumb. Uh, right. It's just so simple. How did you get the word shower? You know, shh is onomatopoeia. And then we discovered hot water. Ow! You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it's ludicrously yeah. stupid.
0: This has happened to me so many times in my career where I spend all my time writing headlines, 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 headlines. And then I start writing copy and there's like 10 headlines better than anything I've written in the copy. Right. And it's because I wasn't operating from I have to write headlines. I was just speaking. You know, I was, I was. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because having taught,
1: you know, people say, how do I start? And I just say, just start writing. Just start writing and don't try to like come up with the best seven words. Just start writing. But people are just, and maybe this is a function of age, they're more afraid to do it than I think, certainly than I am now because that's what I do now. Or sometimes I'll write a bunch of headlines and then to your point, I'll write the body copy and I go, oh, this is so much better. Or I'll post something online, I'll post one of my ads yeah. online and I usually try to do like a a jocular you know, post copy and a lot of times the post copy is better than the, the headline,
2: yeah. Uh-uh.
0: Well, it's interesting. I I think the number one career killer that I've seen of really some really talented people in my career is a fear of their talent, right? a fear of actually doing it. They spend all of their time trying not to put themselves on the line. And I don't know if you've noticed that, but it's I see it with people all the time. And especially when I started, when I became a leader of an agency and I had to manage people and I went, you are afraid of your talent and you're sitting on your talent and you're really good but you're fr- you don't know that there's another one coming you think maybe there's not and that, there always is like there's always something else coming it's as creative people i i personally i'll just speak for myself like you're always terrified that the last thing you did was the last thing you did like i'm never going to do anything else you know that was it
1: i mean i think that's the hardest thing for me about working solo is there's nobody to give me kind of that and you'd think after forty yeah. year or a lifetime in a sense of doing this, you wouldn't need the affirmation. Yeah. But from a baseball point of view, I know that every pitcher who's ever walked on the mound says, Maybe I've lost that, that, that foot off my fastball. Maybe my curve isn't yeah. breaking anymore. You know, they feel yeah. a twinge and up, oh, that's it. And Done. yeah, you know, or Gloria Swanson and Sunset Boulevard. I mean, I think everybody has the fear. You're a nicer person than I am, because what <laughs> what I've noticed, and it frustrates the fuck out of me. Yeah, is when I worked in an office, I was always an early bird, and I would see people get in at ten thirty, and then kind of go through like a Lady Macbeth routine. About how busy they are, you know, washing their hands, pacing, you know, rubbing their temples. Yeah. Those moments where the people who presenting come back from the client, everyone's in a giant conference room at four o'clock. You have to figure out what to do for a meeting the next day. And, you know, it's 730 at night by the time, you know, they tell you all the changes that need to be made. And then it's 1030 at night before people start coming. All we really have to do is change all the, to And, right. and right. we're staying till 1.30 in the morning. Right. Just do it. I mean, yeah. to coin a phrase. Not bad advice.
0: Yeah. I, I did want to ask you this question, actually. You've been very vocal against networks, and, and I agree with you 100%. It's the reason I opened my own agency is I think the network world has been quite destructive to it, the industry. I would certainly like you to say anything you want to say about that, but I think anyone who's read your your blog knows your point of view. I wonder if you've had any blowback from either friends, colleagues, or more officially, have there been any kind of repercussions from your stance against networks? No, not at all.
1: I'm going to name names. I don't I don't care. I'm not doing anything nefarious or mean. I'm friendly with Rob Riley, who's the new CCO of That's great. the WPP yeah. group. Yeah. And Rob and I go literally back to the early nineties yeah, and we've stayed in touch through the years. I, I, I'm i not sure I could pick them out of a lineup because we haven't seen each other, but, <laughs> but we've, you know, we've stayed in touch through social media and what, and we're, we live in a small world. And when Rob just switched from McCann to WPP, I guess he sent me a note the other day on um, Facebook and it started out as kind of like a frat guy chit chat. And then it was like, Hey, you know, lay off some of the holding company bashing. Because I had posted something like, yeah, uh, I think on the day, the, the anniversary of the day the Titanic sunk, uh, April 12th, I think I had posted a painting of the Titanic sinking. And it said, name that agency or name that holding company, something like that. He wrote, hey, lay off, holding companies aren't all bad. And uh, of course, they're not all bad, Rob. But you're an ad guy. Advertising people need enemies. Microsoft wasn't all that bad. You know, Apple made them an enemy. Right. Um, you know, right. American cars weren't all that bad. VW and the Japanese made them an enemy. I mean, we this is a little bit Nike, Adidas. This is a little Burger King, uh, McDonald's. This is a little what we do. Right now you're my you're my enemy. You know, the thing I will say just from a mathematical point of view and I have a very I'm cursed with a mathematical mind, there was the year Martin Sorrell made $100 million. Oh yeah, million. I'm not exaggerating, uh, literally $100 million. And that's what they've announced, so it might have been more. But if you, right. if you break that down and you say, and you've run an agency, and I've been near the top of a couple agencies, you say, well, that's $1,000, $100,000 creatives. Right. Would WPP be better, pay the guy $10 million. Would he be better off with 900 extra mid to senior level creatives or better off giving Martin a hundred million dollars. Right. And I'm sorry, I'm on the side of the coal miner, not the coal mine company. Right. And you know, I feel like I don't know what you're getting. And frankly, because I was pretty intimate with most of my clients over the years, a lot of them would say the same thing to me. Like there were 14 people in that meeting, 11 of them were texting you were the only one working with us. I mean, working, not just defending. Listening, playing back, responding to trying to get a sense of their predicament, their issues, their needs, which is a job of listening. And everybody else was tapping on their keyboard or, or texting. And you're like, what are we doing here? yeah why do we have this infrastructure and and maybe it's it is a New York thing on the rare day that you run out at five because you have a dental appointment or a kid in ballet recital, you see the black cars lined up in front of the agency and thirty six hours earlier you got an email from you know finance saying no more cabs before nine right and you go <laughs> right. way i mean yeah. yeah you know this is the kind of like I said, I do a lot of work, and maybe this is grandiose, David, but you know, guiding clients. And there seems to be just as much as there's um, in your parlance, there's a kind of conflict between shareholder economics running a company for the shareholder's benefits and stakeholder right. way of right. doing it. Right, exactly. There's a new, new-ish phrase uh, or set of phrases called yo-yo versus wit. Yo-yo is you're on your own, and yeah. wit is we're in this together. It's another way yeah. of saying shareholder, stakeholder. Right. But you know, so often I felt under the aegis of holding company, you're on your own, man. Yeah. You're not working on a cool account. You might be working on the richest account, but you're not working on a cool account. You're not winning us awards. We're not going to give you resources. We're not going to give you a raise. We're not going to give you any help. You're on your own. And I don't think that's respectful. I don't think that's good. And, you know, the thing that I would say to people at the C-level is if you had a million dollars, would you put it in an ad holding company? Yeah. If you were a sports better, would you bet on a team run by a guy who never played the sport?
0: Very interesting. I mean, would
1: you? Would you want... I mean, I'm not a big sports fan, but I'd kind of like the manager of the
0: Yankees to have played baseball. Yeah, I was going to ask you what would you tell CMOs like if you were going to give a speak at a a CMO conference? What would what would it be called? What would the title be? Well, I wonder if that's it. But if that's not it, what would it be? I mean, I you
1: know, as Jimmy Durante used to say, I've got a million of them. Um, (laughs) You know, but one of the things that I, I do say to people is, you know, work with the founder and only the founder. Right, and you know, there's a reason. I very self consciously, and I'm I'm a very shy guy. And as much as this has all been about me, I don't think I'm an egoist. But I called my company George Co. because I know I bring a strange set of skills, and my clients get me. It's not that I'm going to do everything, but you get me, and you don't get the bait and switch pitch. You don't get the swoop and poop. Right. You know, uh, I mean, you get me. You show up on the call. Yeah. Yeah. And if you are buying the, quote unquote, just to bring it around in a sense, if you're buying the brand, a brand of brashness and honesty and maybe a little bit of aggression and no bullshit in in any event, if you're buying that as an ethos, that's what you're going to get. I'm not going to pull punches. And I think sometimes the reason I'm so non-subtle on my blog, you know, I could be a lot more subtle, is that this is what I think is right for companies. What's right for companies is to take a stand, not to say... We can help you. May be able to, uh, you know. Don't take Allegra if you're allergic to Allegra. We're going to help you do this. You know, the CMO when I worked on Mercedes used to say a car should make you feel 15 years younger and 15 years lighter. I go, okay. Well, that's. Yeah. I mean, and we're we're a certain age. We're both. I mean, incredibly well built, but, um, <laughs> but but you know you can understand the sentiment, like the promise Absolutely. to the viewer. And if you go back to whether it's your definition of a brand or my definition of a brand, they're, they're very similar. I just say a brand is a promise to a viewer and, right. or right. a reader, whatever you want to say. But my promise to the viewer is, and this is a little maybe New York street tough, we're going to win. You know, I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna yeah. do what I need to do to outthink, to outsmart, to outwrite, to outplot, to outplan everybody else. And I don't I don't know that holding companies can be quite so liberated with their
0: energies. Well, it seems to me holding companies to me seem to be focused on on getting getting on the list as the most award winning network, right? And everything has twisted into this. Again, case studies and um, yeah, 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 the real work. Yeah, yeah, just do that. Just do, make that sausage, do that. But what we really need to focus on is I need to get my best people focused on winning it can. That is, I think, what has happened to this business. And I don't know that holding companies represent the advertising business anymore. I just don't know. I, I'm, it's an open question for me. I, I, don't, I don't know.
1: There's a guy um, who I admire, um Was kicked out of the New York Times for being too liberal. His name is Christopher Hedges. Um, He he wrote a book called The Empire of Illusion. And I must say, I read it probably in 2010. And he really predicted the rise of Trump because the first chapter, I think, is on pornography, the second chapter is on wrestling, and the third chapter is on politics. Mm -hmm. And you see that confluence in our last. Few years. You know, the subhead is the end of literacy and the triumph of spectacle. And to my mind, that's a little bit what you're saying when you're talking about um, the holding company's infatuation with the spectacle of can. You know, I wrote a post on it. If I have time, I, I, I condensed the book into 10 bullets for our industry. But I think that the original intent of advertising. Samuel Johnson said in 1754, the soul of advertising is promise, large promise. Most advertising doesn't even make a promise to a viewer anymore. Right. And somehow it seems beneath us to actually sell. Or somebody will say, it's, I mean, again, when I was working on AI and Alexa dominated the market by saying that little thing on your table is AI. It's not AI. You know, right. I, I wrote a whole essay on, on the power of doing things that are hard. AI is hard, man. During <laughs> right. this phone call, we've accumulated more petabytes of data than all of civilization has had before 1800. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. I'm 92% sure that's right. Now, what do maybe, I do maybe, with ni- maybe 1900. Yeah. Maybe 1970. Yeah. AI is meant to fix that. You think that's easy? No, that's not easy. Yeah, incredible. But everything is supposed to be easy. Everything is supposed to be an if-then proposition. If you do this, then you'll win an award. Then you'll be successful. No, sorry. It's a slog, man. And that's why I write every day. My writing every day is to show the world that what we do is like what a farmer did in an agrarian culture. It might take me – do you know the movie Shane? Yes. You know, there's a scene where Van Heflin and uh, Alan Ladd finally pulled the stump up. Yeah. That was a five-year project. <laughs> they didn't blow it up with dynamite. Yeah, that's incredible.
0: <laughs> you know, that's our job. We got to get stumps out of the way. That might be the uh, articulation of your brand. We got to get stumps out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> no. George, I, I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I can't David, you enough this would be great. We should do one. this every week. All right, brother. Thank you. This has been another episode of Brands in Action. Many thanks to our guest, George Tannenbaum. Today's show has been brought to you by Pony Source Brewing. Remember, when life gives you lemons, put them in a beer, because that sounds kind of delicious. Pony Source Brewing, drink about it. If you're digging the show, please give us a review and a like. It really does make a difference. Production help by Nathan Nichols, editing by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell, executive production by Alexa Tesoriero, and music by Medium Heat. All other help from your friendly neighborhood Baldwin app.